This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Your attention is precious. Hold in a million directions for a million different reasons. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina works hard to make sure your health insurance isn't one of the many things distracting you from what's important. By making healthcare easier to navigate, we help keep your focus on the moments that matter most. Like dinner with loved ones. Letting you focus on you. That's the benefit of Blue. Learn more at BenefitOfBlueSC.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He is a professional survival instructor, a best-selling author of multiple books on the subject of survival. He's a co-star of the hit discovery show, Dual Survival. He's an instructor, consultant, and trainer of all things survival running courses on such topics. When the shit hits the fan, MacGyver, Rambo, and Chuck Norris all call him to get bailed out. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Cody Lundeen. Hey, thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, thanks for coming. I, uh, we, we were just talking off camera for a second about uh, the fires in your area that, that are affecting us or affecting you guys uh, there. Can you give us a, a quick update on what's going on with that? Yeah, the update is if you have asthma, don't come to Prescott, Arizona right now. Yeah. The update is we're at about a little over 3,000 acres here. Uh, the Flagstaff one is 22,000 acres. I literally walked through ash falling to get to the podcasting studio here at Yavapai College. Jeez. And it sucks because it's April. And so what that means is our fire season usually starts May, June. Those are the hottest months for us in this part of Arizona. So to have a kind of unprecedented two major fires start in April when it's still cool out, you know, when it's still essentially early spring, doesn't bode well for us when it gets hotter um, as it's going to and drier, et cetera. Yeah. How, I mean, is, is it uh, every couple of years it seems like you're plagued with fires of that magnitude or is this kind of a once in a – No, it used, it used to be every few years, but now it seems like every year. Yeah. One of my course areas burned, not entirely, but this is a course where we're covering 40, 50 miles of ground and the fire scorched a lot of that area. So you can do the math on the number of acres. So it's becoming more pronounced. Things are becoming more dry in the Southwest. We have winds today of of 40 to 50 mile per hour gusts, which is not helping our firefighters here. And I'm I'm sure you probably heard and your listeners too, a few years ago, 
you know, we lost 19 of our four fi- mm-hmm. our firefighters, right? They died yeah. in the Yarnell fire. And it's just, you know, you know, what do you say? I mean, yeah. it's, it's unfortunately, it's probably a sign of things to come. Yeah, that's no, bad news. Well, I hope uh, I hope they get it under control and the wind dies down and you guys get uh, back to some semblance of normal. But it sounds like yeah. it might be a little while. Yeah, um, thanks. What, what's the most non-minimalist guilty pleasure that would surprise people that you like to enjoy? Non-minimalist. I love muscle cars. You like muscle cars? I, it's funny you should mention that. I do. <laughs> I like sports okay. cars. I, mean, I, I appreciate muscle cars. I'm more of a fan of the uh, the Euro exotics, but... But yeah, uh, another show that I do, Uninfluenced, is uh, that's all we talk about is bikes and, and cars and, and everything. So, okay, like, well, can I, uh, I? I shouldn't cuss on your show, right? You, sh- you should cuss on my show, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't know shit about cars, yeah. really. I'm not a mechanic. That's not my profession. Me either. And I appreciate what you like. I mean, there's something about, I think, as a Lamborghini Countach back in the day, or yeah. a Porsche. You know, the Porsche turbos with the whale tail. Yeah. That's total art, sure. right? But I also love vintage USA American muscle cars. For sure. Because the the Barracuda, the the Challenger, stuff like that. So most people don't know that about me. Yeah. Um, That's interesting. I'm, uh, I'm not I, – I know I look kind of like a hippie, and I sort of <laughs> am. But I'm also uh, – I mean, I don't know any hippies that like muscle cars. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, well, I'm right there with you. You're, you're the first, I guess, if you would consider yourself a hippie. But, uh, I, I mean, for me, I like both. I, you know, I, I appreciate the the heritage that is behind American muscle and because it's American and just kind of the the nostalgia that comes along with uh, with that time period in this country. Not that I was really around for it, but uh, but just understanding how it was then, uh, it, it's hard not to not to like that. On the same token, from a pure driving experience standpoint, uh, you know, the, the newer, you know, just meticulous and, and uh, masterfully engineered machines that, uh, that the Germans and Italians and, and English, for that matter, uh, you know, have made in the last decade are, are, are marvels, frankly. Um, you know, not to say that, that some of the American cars right now aren't also, but they're, they're definitely not on the same level, but... Um, you know, to me, hand, handling is really what separates a good car from a great car. That the steering and handling, you know, speed and power is is a must, and it's and it's sexy and fun. But you know, when when you feel connected to the actual car itself on the road, and you feel like you're you're kind of working in sync, and the steering is almost on a telepathic nature, then that's when uh, to me that that's when you really experience it and, and really enjoy it for me at least. But so what like, I have to ask, like, do you like? Well, I won't say what do you have, but I mean, my yeah, dad was military, so I grew up partly in Germany when oh, yeah. I was a kid because my dad was Air Force. Oh, nice. And so I understand Porsche, right, because yeah. I was in that land. But what is your favorite? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know that I necessarily have a favorite. I mean, I think all, all brands tend to um, hit and miss. You know, some some maybe are more consistent than others, but they all have fumbles and and uh, touchdowns. You know, I, I you know, to me, Ferrari makes a, a very well-balanced car. Uh, I'm less of a fan of Lamborghini with the exception of one or maybe two models. Uh, Porsche as a brand, I, I love. Uh, Engineering-wise, they're great. For me, they're not as fun to drive because they're they're a little rougher and just a little more sterile to the point where they're almost uh, over-engineered, where it almost kind of takes the playfulness and, and fun out of it. Um, McLaren is kind of a weird mix, um, but, I mean, they make 
really, really good cars, but to me, they're not as fun to drive. Uh, I'd say if I had to pick one, I think f- from the cars that I've driven, um, you know, Ferrari has, has been the most fun to drive. You know, I've, I've rented a lot of different cars at, at tracks and, and I've had, you know, a, a number of different uh, cars over the last years that I've uh, have come and gone that I've tried out and, and what have you. But, uh, but yeah, I guess if I, if I had to pick one, I'd say, say it's that, but, um, I have never driven a Ferrari, so yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll have to take your word for it. Yeah. Well, if you may, if you find yourself in Vegas, there's a place called speed Vegas that you can rent, uh, just about whatever you want oh, really? uh, and, and drive it on a track, which is pretty neat, you know? So, uh, yeah, you really get to experience like if you if you want to find out what you like, you know, go spend a day or two <laughs> there and, and try everything out. But, um, what's your biggest oh shit moment when you're out in the elements, whether it was on camera or off? My biggest oh shit moment was probably dealing with Discovery Channel executives. <laughs> that was the most terrifying, yeah. horrifying experience of my entire life, and I wish yeah. I was kidding, oh, but no I'm sure. not. Yeah, it's that bad. So the wilderness, even though it's unpredictable, um, it's not actively trying to hurt you or yeah. demean you or defame you or whatever. Human nature, as you know. Oh, yeah. I just read a little bit about you, and I really um, – Part of the reason I agreed to do this is what you do with the dogs. Oh, I appreciate it. I think that's uh, really cool. Highly, I mean, highly respectful. So I, I really, because I've had enough of the phony military bullshit yeah. with people on TV that have lied to get on TV, you know, using phony stuff, phony military credentials to get on TV. I'm sick of it. Yeah. Well, that's, um, that's per- very prominent in your line of work, I imagine. It is. Yeah. And it's probably prominent in your line of work. Oh, yeah. I see. I mean, I, I see phonies all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, so I, um, unfortunately, that's that's the most terrifying thing. Wilderness is can be a scary place. And, of course, ignorance is not bliss. But it's not actively engaging for your demise. That's what human nature does. And you know that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, I, are, are there some times where it almost feels like human nature is coming after you? I mean, I, I know that there's been instances where, you know, the interesting thing about the military is that the, the environment and the elements are, are an intangible, obviously out of our control that, that can, uh, of course have enormous impacts on our operations and, and even cause them to be aborted or postponed or, or fail. Uh, you know, and so from, from my experience, obviously very different from yours in that regard, but, uh, but similarly is that, you know, you're trying to accomplish a goal and, and mother nature is saying, yeah, maybe not this time. Uh, and so for us, I think a lot of times it feels like we're trying to do something and mother nature is, is just kicking you square in the nuts, you know, every step along the way while you're trying to do it. Um, do you ever get that sense when you're out and about? Yeah, but it's, um, and I understand that we have this. As people, we have this misnomer of, and I'll say it, you know, man versus wild, which is bullshit. Yeah. Um, if you go way back to where your people's trained from, and we'll, I'll get to the point on this, is Dave Gancy is one of my main desert survival mentors. And Dave Gancy's in his 80s now. And he told me stories about the U.S. military. We're, we're doing Vietnam. We're doing jungle training. And all of a sudden, there's this threat in the Middle East. And so desert survival training got hot and heavy, according to him, in the 80s, when they were, they, as in the military, were approaching him to do desert survival training. And originally, they'd gone to the Bedouins, the U.S. military, and 
asked the Bedouin people, hey, we're, we'd like you to train us how you survive in this environment. And they were like, well, what are you talking about? We don't survive here. We live here. Okay, that's an attitude shift. That's a mind shift that really is endemic with indigenous peoples because when you grow up there, yeah, there's threats, but you know how it is. Yeah. I can imagine how you are in the military with the people that you've done stuff with out in the field you have a whole different look at combat and being in the military than I have no, I have not one hour of military experience. I don't know shit about what you do. I'd yeah. love to know what you do, but I don't. So what I'm saying is when a street person is comfortable on the street, they know where the homeless shelter is. They know where that gas station behind the alley that doesn't block off the water. An indigenous person, whether they're mountain, desert, or whatever, they're uncomfortable with their they're they're comfortable with their environment. And so we have this thing in the USA, and it's perpetuated by phony nonsense on TV about there's this threat and it's always out to get you, right? It's out and no, it's not. So Dave Gancy was one of my top mentors. Another one was Morris Kachansky, who recently died. He was in Alberta, Canada, and did a lot of stuff with Swedish military. And his thing was, the bush is neutral. It's neither for you nor against you. It just is. Yeah. And you better know what you're doing. So I like to take that approach to it in more ways than one. There's a lot of people that are survival instructors, and they preach the fear card, which I'm not going to do. Um, that's, that's a great way to try to make money to scare the shit out of people to get them to take your courses. But that's not how I want to operate. And, uh, as a survival instructor, as a professional, my goal is to try to mitigate, uh, people's risks in the back country. So there's a lot of stuff that's coming up in my head now of people I respect that were my mentors. They're my elders. And so I train with some of the best and thank God that they got to me when I was young enough to be more or less of a blank slate. I'm sure you have your mentors yeah. and your people. And, and if you come to them unadulterated and you train from a master, that's a fucky, fucking lucky person, right? Yeah, Because oh, there's so much bullshit out there now that if you get bullshit and bullshit, you know this, and I'm happy to be talking to someone, you know, <laughs> who's a professional, you understand your life is on the line based on the data you get from your people that trained you to whatever information you get to go on a mission. It's serious stuff. And I take my profession the same way. I'm dealing with people's safety. So, yes, there's a bunch of threats in the wilderness and there's a bunch of unknowns. And if you go back far enough in human culture, the reason the dark, as in nighttime, is the number one archival threat or scary thing for people is because it epitomizes the unknown. There's a lot of variables. So as an example, I first learned the word variable from Dave Gansey. And I would ask Dave Gansey, my desert sort of mentor, because I'm pretty blunt and I want, just give me the fucking information, man. Yeah. Don't sugarcoat it. And I'm like, Dave, what if blah, 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 blah happens? And he's like, Cody, maybe yes, maybe no. And they used to drive me crazy. Maybe yes, maybe no. You're a professional desert <laughs> survival instructor. And then he brought up the word variables. And it, it took about 10 years for variables and maybe yes, maybe no to sink into my heart from my head and realize he's so good at what he does that he understands how vulnerable he is as a man because he's seen stuff that a beginning survival instructor, they'll have black and white answers for. 
Someone who's new in my profession will have the answer, right? Someone who's seasoned in my profession sometimes says, I don't know. And when you're dealing with your, with human safety, the person that says, I don't know is someone that you might want to put a little bit of trust in. Yeah. I I love that. I I know uh, on the dog training side, uh, it's kind of similar that way, you know, is that early on, you know, there's like a, almost a happy medium of, of a shitty compromise or, or kind of the worst of both worlds is the just knowing just enough to be dangerous to where what do you mean by that? Are you meaning the dog sensing someone who's a beginner or what do you mean by that? No, for like, so if, if I'm, uh, if I'm instructing, you know, a, a novice dog owner on, on how to train their dog and how to work with their dog, et cetera, is that similarly, I'd say 95% of the time when, when I start an answer of any question, it starts out with, it depends, right? you know, not this is how you do it. And it's always this, you know, whereas when, when people know just enough to be dangerous, it's very definitive. There, there's an ego vacuum there where it's, you know, I have to feel like I have to exude confidence. I, I have to say, you know, and, and assume and have these people assume that I know exactly what I'm talking about and give them a very definitive answer. And a lot of times it's that same kind of thing. It's like, well, may, maybe not, maybe that's not the right answer. Cause you know, dogs just like with people are, are not cookie cutter. Like, yeah, there are basic principles that apply to all dogs the same way. There's basic basic principles that apply to all people that apply to survival situations, but there's those variables and intangibles that really drive and dictate the, the nuance of, of what the right answer is or isn't, you know? So exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I, exactly. Yeah. And that's what is not happening in yeah. my profession. Yeah. Well, same, yeah, same a with variety mine. of different. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, you know, there's dog trainers pop up every, you know, every month that, uh, you know, that start their own business. And, and similarly, like there's no governing body and I'm not saying that that's the right answer necessarily. I don't know that that would fix anything. I, I think it would, create a bureaucracy and a good old boy network that, that wouldn't yep. change anything and just would complicate shit. But, but the reality of it is just like, you know, I could start a, a survival company. Uh, anybody can, you know, say, Hey, I'm Joe Bob, the dog trainer. And, and uh, you know, I have this business and I started an LLC and, and charge people for training. And, and some of it is dangerously terrible, similarly to, to your line of work, but the, you know, hearing can, you talk, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say hearing you talk about, uh, before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah Woo-hoo! often thinks about the old boring Sarah. Yes. And wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over 100 casino-style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, the, the difference between surviving and living, it reminds me of uh, we, we spent uh, about almost two months in the Philippines uh, on one of my deployments. And uh, we were working with the Filipino version of, of SEALs. And... Similarly, we went through this jungle survival evasion and escape, or just it's uh, jungle environmental survival training. But uh, you know, it was, it was about ten days or so of of out, you know, living in the in the Filipino jungle with these guys, and and it was exactly that. You know, we were we were surviving, you know, and, and I won't say barely, but you know, it, it was it was difficult. Uh, whereas these guys, it was like it was no different than any of the other three hundred and fifty five days out of their year. You know, like, you know, they're, they're diving into, into swamps and grabbing frogs and making bamboo shoot soup and, and trapping shit and climbing trees to get coconuts and, and, you know, different, 
you know, levels of, of bamboo to build shit and whatever. And it was just like, Jesus Christ, like these guys are at home. They're in their element. This is just, mm-hmm. just another day to them. And, and we're sitting here, you know, spilling fucking rice and, and tripping over hammocks and, you know, fiddle fucking around trying to, trying to, to just not, not starve to death, you know, and uh, it was very humbling. Yeah. And that's the difference between a local, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. I mean, and, similarly, if they came to Dallas, they, they would be a fish out of water and would have no fucking <laughs> idea how to, how to survive here either. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was interesting, eye opening, and, uh, and, and was good for, for perspective. No, no two ways about it. Um, was there a, an episode, uh, or, or an environment? And I know, you know, that's, that's but a snapshot of your professional career, but just because that's something that I think, anybody could actually actually watch was there an an episode from an environmental standpoint where where the environment itself proved to be the most challenging that that kind of stands out as being the harshest or hardest to deal with sure in general and this is well beyond this television show thing and i i know that you're into that because i I watched it i mean yeah, I mean, I I was a big fan of yours the the whole time. You know, when it first came out, I watched it as they aired. I loved that show. Yeah, it's uh, working for Discovery Channel was the worst thing that's ever happened. <laughs> yeah, it sounds with like a caveat. Again, no exaggeration. Yeah, but let me answer that question, and I'm fine with the TV questions as long as you're fine with brutal answers. I mean, absolutely. I'd, I'd prefer nothing less. Okay. This goes, you know, well beyond the television show, but the main reason people die in an outdoor survival situation usually is lack of resources. If it's too cold outside and I don't have enough warmth, the person dies of lack of warmth called hypothermia. The inverse is true. If it's too hot outside and, and I can't get enough cool in my core body temperature, hyperthermia takes the person out, etc. So one thing that dictates resources, as you know, and I know, is water. So any sort of desert region requires a high apex of skill because you don't have the Filipino jungle, right? They're driving, they're diving into swamps and getting frogs and climbing coconut trees. That doesn't happen out here, you know? So Chile, the Atacama Desert, to specifically answer your question, um, where they, the, I guess NASA did the Mars rover, right? It's like there's these calcite crystals. I saw one bug during that shoot, like this, like lonely bug. It had wings. It was flying. Was, what the hell is this? Picture a place with no bugs, no plants, these weird calcite crystals. Remember Star Trek? Yeah. There's that, you know, Captain Kirk is, there's that one, there's gorilla creatures that are coming after Captain Kirk on this deserted land. It looked like a set out of a, a Star Trek episode. There was nothing growing. And not only that, the ground had a sodium capacity to it. It was salt on the ground. There's the Atacama Desert in Chile, which there's oases out there. But in general, because I want to keep it general until you choose a rabbit hole to go down resources, lack of resources are what kills people. And any desert region with lack of resources inherently based in the bioregion automatically requires a higher apex of skill to deal with that region. So, you know, again, just add resources. And then we've got the frogs and the plants and all the stuff that those Philippine seals are the equivalent of, as you said, they make it seem easy. Yeah. So again, water is is really key, and we're seeing an absence of that here in the Southwest, like we kind of initiated, uh, uh, initiated with the fire talk 
you know, earlier, you know, in this podcast. And it's a big concern, yeah. you know, and it's water is life, man. Yeah. And I'm here to tell you, you know, if, uh, where are you from then? Texas is where you're at? I'm in the Dallas area. I'm originally from Iowa, which, you know, it's plenty humid and tons of rainfall there too. Okay. So, but not I mean, where you are right now, right? Uh, it, it's actually. Yeah, in Dallas. I'm in Dallas. So it's but is it arid? Would you I don't know no. nothing about Dallas. Is it no. would you consider it arid or not? No, it's it's very humid here. I mean, we're only an hour and a half, two hours from the Louisiana border, so it's very oh, okay. humid. Okay. Yeah. Well now if if you well, go three or four hours west of here, once you start getting into to West Texas, then yeah, it's it's like New Mexico and Arizona and you know it's all So that's the Chihuahuan day. Desert that I know Texas has. Yeah. Got it. So that would be similar to us. So, you know, that's my long-winded way of saying, you know, the most challenging environments are the ones with the least amount of resources, and the resources are usually dictated by water. Yeah. I, I mean, it makes perfect sense, and I know I've, I've run into that. You know, when I when I first was at SEAL Team 3, we were – this was before a reorganization kind of military – or not military-wide, but Navy-wide – where uh, they, they kind of went away from subject matter experts or areas of, uh, of expertise within each SEAL team kind of having its own thing that they were good at. And SEAL Team 3 was, was the CENTCOM or Central Command Desert Warfare specialist kind of team. So the first few years I was at SEAL Team 3, that was our thing. And so we did a lot of, uh, you know, long-range reconnaissance stuff at, at you know, in the, in the Mojave Desert and, uh, you know, by Fort Irwin and, and around Vegas and, uh, you know, some places that in July, August are, are pretty, pretty difficult oh, yeah. places to, to be. But, uh, so yeah, I can, I can certainly appreciate that. No doubt. And, and I know another thing I'm curious of is, is in terms of the, the instruction that you give to a certain extent, uh, I think it, it is driven off of confidence and, and in some ways can't be taught, but I know in the military, there's a huge component of not panicking. That, that plays such an enormous role. I mean, especially when you're in the water, you know, we're a maritime special operations group and, and we do a lot of things, you know, underneath the water on closed circuit breathing devices and, and open circuit, but panicking underwater is a very quick way to get yourself killed. But, uh, but even in a survival environment, I know, you know, the, the survival training that I have been a part of is that that was a key concept was being able to maintain a sense of calmness and not wasting energy and, and, you know, not panicking because you, you tend to make emotionally based shitty decisions when, when you're in that uh, train of, of thought. And so I'm curious, is that something that, that you typically cover uh, in, in some of your, your survival courses? I do. I mean, I, in my opinion, survival is 90% psychology because it doesn't matter what you have buried in your backyard. If you're too scared, stupid to use it, Yeah. whether I, I don't, when I here, here's what I think a survival instructor should have the three P's I call it psychology, physiology, and physics. So psychology is what you're talking about, which obviously dictates human physiology. And then we have the physics, primarily heat loss and gain. So we're dealing with conduction, convection, radiation, evaporation, respiration, the five main ways that a human body loses or gains heat, hypo, hyperthermia, dehydration, blah, blah, blah. So this, what you just said is key to staying alive, but I don't like drone and lecture on about that. I do in my books in a sense, but I try to dovetail in human physiology, human psychology, and the physics of heat loss and gain in almost everything I do. And what I mean by that is I teach modern outdoor survival skills, 
What happens if the Jeep breaks down and starts to lightly snow? I teach primitive living skills, catching fish with your hands, making fire with sticks, blah, blah, blah. And I teach urban preparedness with or without zombies. And I just taught uh, a, a college course a couple of weeks ago at Yavapai College on primitive skills. And we were going to the museum. Uh, I had them uh, study their culture of origin so they're not trying to play Indian. I have a Scandinavian background. So my Viking people look like this and we're probably killing your people. Sorry, a yeah. thousand years ago because we tended to do that. And it was all primitive skills based, making fire with sticks, literally, etc. And then I just gave a lecture for the Ocosa Institute at Prescott College. Um, they do have a sustainable design program there. And they wanted me to lecture on urban preparedness based on my homestead and uh, a grid down scenario based on my second book, When All Hell Breaks Loose. And so uh, there's the, those three main things. Modern outdoor survival skills, primitive living skills, and urban preparedness. I'm trying to think of a SEAL metaphor. One's a shotgun, one's this 50 cal sniper rifle, and the other's a Colt 1911, whatever. They're all guns, but you know more than most people, they have specific applications for specific things. Yeah. And so what happens in survival training, I know I'm, I'm going off the deep end here, but people confuse those with BS TV shows and whatnot. And, and it, context is everything in my world or people die. Context is everything in your world or people die. And context defines all content. So um, I, just in the last couple of weeks, we went from making fire with sticks to talking about passive solar design, et cetera. So I don't know if that answered the uh, the question because I I got off track. No, but, um, yeah, no, I absolutely did, and I I appreciate the uh, the rabbit hole that you went down because uh, as you said, context is everything, and I think that 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 provides uh, additional uh, context. So no, I do appreciate it. Um, you know, I, as far as the that that mentality goes, um, I, from my experience, that's one of those things that that's kind of hard to teach. Uh, I, I think some people inherently are are better at you know, maintaining a sense of, of level headedness and, and calmness. Some of it comes with confidence. A lot of it comes with confidence and the more situations you've been through, the more confident and calm you can be. But I, I still think that there is a, almost a genetic component to uh, people being calm under, under pressure to a certain extent. But that's a good uh, question. And, and my, my main answer is I don't know. Yeah. I know I've read a few books way in the past. I couldn't remember the names, and I, I do think that some people chill easier than other people. Yeah. But as you know, um, while I'm not doing this rote lecture on the uh, psychological survival per se, it's inherent in everything we're doing when we train. Yeah. And as you know, training and repetition, 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 repetition helps deal with a lot of those boogeymen of, of the, the mind stuff that creeps in when people get freaked out. Absolutely. There's the stop thing. It's in the survival books, you know, stop, think, observe, plan. I've added the, the letter A in my book, act, and that might be hugging a tree if you're a kid or whatever to actively walking yourself out of a situation. But one thing as a teacher, um, and I know you're one too, you can bore the shit out of people with what you know they need. But if you don't pre- present the information in a way, will they retain it? It doesn't matter. 
So psychological survival is really trips my trigger. It's very fascinating to me, but it can be boring as shit to most yeah. people. Yeah. So in my books, I'm engaging with, you know, um, R. Crumb. I don't know if you're familiar with that illustrator, did a lot of the crazy 1960s comics and whatnot. Um, we chose in my books to have different characters representing different qualities sketched out in a way that was funky, like you're not going to see in any other survival book. The reason I did that even though I did do a lot of acid when I was a kid. The reason I did that is because way before the written language, there was imagery before the written language. And what retains in a person's psyche under stress, which is what we're talking about, essentially panic, fear, low-level anxiety, etc., are images. It's not the paragraph I'm writing on how to start the fire. It's looking at the illustration of that hippie dude making the fire that's going to stick in someone's psyche. That's been proven for decades. So I'm big into imagery. I'm big into gross motor skills, stuff that works under stress. As I talk to the seal, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? I don't want fine and complex motor skill stuff in my clients if I can help it. Because as you know, in combat or military training, Fine and complex motor skills go to hell under real stress pressure when someone's shooting at you. So that gross motor skill stuff is what we're left with. So it's important to assess how people learn, how they digest information, and more importantly, to your point, how they retain that information in an emergency scenario. And it's not traditional teaching. It has to be different. It has to be visual. It has to be impactful. It has to sometimes I'll say fuck or I'll say shit, not necessarily when kids are my clients, but when I see people kind of, you know, the the, the glare, because I have to do some lecture and demonstration before we do the physical skill. So the context is spot on. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah often thinks about the old boring Sarah and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over 100 casino-style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And when people maybe fade, because we're outdoors. Yeah. You know, here at the college I do, I'm in the classroom two days and out in the bush for two days. But normally all my courses are out in the wilderness. It's hot. People are getting bit by bugs. It's hard to pay attention. And I might throw in profanity simply to go, oh, he, and you can see it, right? And your students yeah. like, okay, now they're paying attention again. Yeah, I'm dealing with my client's safety. That's 100% important to me. That's a priority. I will not negate that. That's a sacred honor to have someone put their fucking life in your hands as a survival instructor. So I give my people 110%. And with that is how I teach them to try to help them retain that information under stress, period. Yeah. Uh, to me, it's, it's fascinating. And I, I love the parallels that, uh, I mean, really throughout 
throughout life in general, I think, I mean, everything is that way, whether it's, you know, shooting and military operations, survival stuff, jujitsu, I mean, being a chef, I mean, you name it, all of those, those, uh, you know, principles apply and how people learn. And, and, you know, to me, that's something I run into very, very often, uh, in, in my industry is, is exactly what you said is there's some, some brilliant, masterful trainers out there that are, are almost too good or they're so advanced that they're, they're talking so far over the head of the people that they're teaching <laughs> that, they're, right. that they're actually not very good at, at instructing because it, it's just too complicated, you know, and that's one thing that I've tried to focus on uh, very specifically in my online training is to just keep it really simple. And I know, you know, if, if I think back to the time in the military that when you first start out, we'll take room clearing uh, as an example, because it's one of the more common things that a lot of people can can at least, uh, you know, imagine or, or have that vision in their head of a SWAT team moving through a target, et cetera, is that, uh, you know, the basics, you know, like when you first start out, you're not doing, you know, a, a train of 16 dudes flooding a house with nine rooms and a long hallway and, and crash bangs going off and, and, you know, shit like that. You start out with one basic, you know, 12 by 12 room, two guys, one going one, one way, one going the other way, doing very, very basic movements. And you practice that, um, and, and one of the terms we use in the in the dog industry is a conditioned response. Some people would say muscle memory, what have you. But you know, my my uh, kind of principal phrase I would say is that a dog is trained when it stops being a decision and becomes a reaction. You know, and 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 that's the key. And especially with a dog, because you can't explain anything to them; they don't think in a language. Everything is A plus B equals C, and, and it's a simple association. But it's it's largely that same way with people, and, and where you know, if, if you do something so many times to where you stop having to think about it, then, then that's where, where your money is made. And, and a lot of times it's hard to, hard to teach people that when, when you're talking so, so far over their head that they're just lost and they're checking their phone and they're wor worrying about lunch and, and everything else. Right. But, um, um, this is the longest lightning round that I've, I've had with any guest. Uh, the last what question. Is that? What does that mean, lightning round? Uh, so usually when I, after the intro, I like to just throw a couple of uh, kind of, cur not curveball, but just, you know, lighter hearted questions to, to get the, the juices flowing. Uh, and, and the last question I ask in that lightning round is what is your morning routine on a, on a normal day where you're not traveling? Normally the lightning round takes, you know, five, maybe seven minutes, you know, and here we are <laughs> a, good, a, a solid half hour and change into it. But is that um, bad? That's fantastic. I mean, to me, okay. I'd, I'd always rather have too much to talk about than not enough. So, um, yeah. My morning routine, yeah. I get up early. I'm an early bird. Um, I like protein. I'll eat six egg whites, two yolks. I'll have some like, uh, not the flaked oats, but it's the, what is it called? The crushed oats or something like the, they're Steel not cut. the flakes. I'll have oatmeal yeah. right, with a few raisins. And I'll train, and yeah. I like free weights, and and uh, and then I'll start my day, right? That's like breathing to me. Training, mm -hmm. um, I train. Uh, originally, I started. This is probably you didn't ask this question, but what the hell? Uh, I got busted for selling drugs when I was a teenager, long really? time ago, and um, I originally started training in jail because I was going <laughs> to fuck up the person that put me in jail. Right, yeah. that was my mo. <laughs> I don't feel that way anymore. I'm a peaceful person now. Um, but looking at 30 years in prison when you're 18 years old is, it sucks. Right. Yeah. And of course, now I just continue to train because we talked a little bit about human physiology. And there's a lot of survival instructors that don't have any first aid training. You know, would you go to a 
car mechanic that didn't understand how an engine works. Yeah. I mean, all survival training is based on human physiology. So if you don't know human physiology to a certain extent, you shouldn't be teaching outdoor survival skills. So that coupled with wanting to stay in shape, you know, because I'm doing these aggressive field courses and I'm having to go above and beyond uh, with my clients. Um, that's how I start my morning uh, five days a week. And then I, I admit I'm a workaholic, but I love what I do. And everything is, if it's not my self-reliant homestead, it's, you know, right now I'm working on a new clubhouse for my school. And I think it's important to just learn how to do stuff that men used to do. Yeah. Granted, I'm not going to fix a car, but, you know, my friends that are great builders, I love to learn. You know, I, I so I like to learn about building with them, little things about, you know, it seems the male species are, you know. We, it's a dying breed. Yeah. You know, yeah. we used to be, my grandpa was a man. Yeah. He needs to, you know, do stuff, you know, and bailed hay until he was 84 years old on his tractor until he rolled his tractor on top of his body and thought he probably ought to retire. Yeah, yeah. probably, Grandpa. Yeah. But that stock, of it was a survival instructor, and you train dogs and you're a SEAL. So we're kind of a different breed, but I'm really passionate about self-reliance big time. I'm yeah. passionate about freedom. And what I've seen in people, myself and in clients and students, hundreds of them, last year was my 30th year anniversary from my Aboriginal Living Skills School, so I've been doing this a long time, is when you can share something with someone that boosts their self-confidence and makes them feel freer, you've done a good thing. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And and that's what I that's what I do. And so I'm really interested in remedial skills, you know, building or whatever. And because I have such a hands-on lifestyle. Yeah, I'm at the office. So, you know, I, I tap on a keyboard every once in a while, but I'm also like doing weird stuff that, that men used to do on a homestead, planting, cutting stuff down. How do I, you know, here's the chainsaw, better tighten the chain, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And someone who lives in more of an urban environment, that that's already a foreign thing. I live in rural environments. Yeah. You know, so I'm having to engage more with nature. And of course, my profession is that too. So as soon as I'm done with my morning training, I go on with whatever needs are of the day. And uh, I'm really grateful to be alive. Yeah, no, I, I love it. Um, as far as the, the morning transitioning into, uh, you know, whatever needs to be done, are most days spent uh, outside of your home or, or are you working on stuff from there? It depends. Like right now, I'm rehabbing a, like a 100-year-old building to be my new clubhouse. And we're talking, you know, I killed five mice last week. I'm setting traps on the roof. I got trap lines in cars. I got trap lines. I live in rodent-infested areas, right, because yeah. they're rural areas. So we're doing roofing and trapping rodents to get them out of there. Tomorrow we'll put in a new old antique door and just – so a lot of it's outside. But in this case, my focus for the last few months has been on rehabbing this old structure. And I don't really know anything about building. Yeah. But I knew friends that are, that are really good. Yeah. Like this one 75-year-old guy that helps me, he's a man, right? He grew up in that era when they were back east and they had a sled in the wintertime and they tapped sugar maples. I had no idea about all these stories telling me, yeah, we had this sled, we tapped sugar maples, they, they had their own sugar house and they boiled it and make maple syrup and they were hands-on with the land. So someone like that that also knows electricity 
and plumbing and building, man, I want to learn from them. Yeah, I absolutely. like to find people that are really good at their craft, and I love to learn from a master. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's that's fantastic, and it's it's rare these days that people are that way. Um, you know, it's kind of the the Amazon Prime right click. I want it right fucking now, and you know, I know. Um, and I mean, we're all guilty of it to a certain extent, but it, it you can see the degradation of our our society as it relates to to the male species that way, where it's. It's just becoming fewer and, and more far between where, where you run into guys that, that you would say, yeah, like that, that's a fucking man right there. Yeah. Um, which well, is a degradation of skill set. Yeah. And with absolutely. that degradation of skill set comes a dependence on stuff that we shouldn't be dependent on. You yeah. can call it technology. You can call it whatever you want. I'm just I'm not interested in conspiracy, conspiracy theories or I've had decades full of conspiracy theories. Right. I've, I've, get, I've gotten all the catalogs in the mail. Over the years, well before this bullshit that's going on now about whatever, but it skill set to, you know, I, I, I don't like, and you haven't asked me any, and I'll be clear with you if you do, these boilerplate questions, Cody, what's your favorite knife? Well, you know, hey, what's your favorite gun? Yeah, and the first depends. thing you would say is, <laughs> what am I doing? What's yeah. the context, right? There's no yeah. context to the question. But I'm finding, you know, the more I learn about skills, hands-on skills and being more self-reliant, it feels really good. And two of the most hardcore skills that someone could have cross-culturally, desert survival, mountain survival, or a cutting edge in fire. And notice I didn't say knife. I said cutting edge. Yeah. It could be a can lid, piece of broken bottle glass. It could be a piece of a flake from a jasper cobble or whatever it is. Cutting edge in fire are being screwed now. I was given a lecture at REI, oh man, like 22 years ago or so. And it's lecture, it was, in, it was in the shop. And this old guy raises his hand and said, well, Cody, back, back when I was a kid in school, we were required to take a knife to recess. And I'm like, holy shit, you know? Yeah. And of course I asked him why. Guess why this, this guy was required to take a knife to recess when he was in school? Do you have any guesses? Mm. The only thing I can think of is maybe it was in a super rural environment where there was natural predators uh, nearby or, or it was in an environment where they got hung up on something and need to cut, cut shit loose. I don't, I don't know. That's the only well, thing I what he of. told me was we were required and expected as young boys to whittle. We hmm. were expected to learn that skill of whittling, how to wield a sharp piece of metal in our hand and not cut our finger off because that was a part of daily society. Yeah. So what happens when a kid takes a knife to school now? Oh, oh my yeah. God. And yeah. I'm not advocating kids take knife to school. What I'm advocating is the lack of content and context yeah. in the USA of an archival skill like knowing how to wield a cutting edge, which is foundational. You know, as a SEAL, I imagine what, what's foundational to your world would have been a firearm in many different uh, attributes. Absolutely. What's foundational in my world is learning how to wield a knife, yeah. knife safety, stuff like that. And the other aspect is fire. So what I mean by fire, people don't know. The forest is burning. I just told you I walked through white ash to get to this pod. It's dropping on my vehicle, the white ash. My prediction, and they haven't found out what happened with this fire yet, Crooks, Crooks Canyon fire, I think. It was Easter weekend. So my bet is some camper made a campfire on Easter weekend and didn't put it out. Yeah. That's, that's my prediction. So fast forward back into what we're talking about. We don't know how to use fire anymore as a culture. 
And someone screwed up big time, probably with both of these fires now in Arizona, because we're pre-monsoonal. We're not, we don't have lightning yet. That rocks and rolls in July where the lightning will start fires potentially because of our monsoon season. So you have fire. People don't know how to use it. If you had a grid down scenario where fuel, Russia just yesterday, you know, told what, uh, Poland and some other country, screw you, we're not giving you any more energy. So energy is being used as a weapon, always has been for decades, right? There's a reason we fight some of these wars. So if the propane's gone, the gas is gone, et cetera, what it ends up down to is someone with a book of matches busting up their kitchen table to cook the canned beans in the backyard. Yeah. Look at Ukraine right now. And that's essentially they're covering the content of my urban preparedness course right now. They're cooking over the open fire, trying not to get killed, getting out of the basement. The other aspect, because you must have listeners that give a shit about hopefully what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, they all do. With fire, the lack of knowing how to make fire is, is, is the danger of fire burning things down. So we have the urban preparedness situation where your idiot neighbor burns their house down. And because of lack of emergency response, because it's an emergency situation, so they're all tied up, you burn down entire neighborhoods. And the other aspect of fire is right now today sitting here talking to you, the most common form of poisoning in the United States of America is carbon monoxide. So people don't understand fire, how it works, let alone how to make it let alone with sticks, if you wanted to get that exotic. They don't understand about uh, carbon monoxide, which right now in a non-grid down situation is the most common form of poisoning right now, believe it or not, is carbon monoxide. So my unfortunate prediction, if we're talking urban preparedness, and this is all uh, brought about by the lack of a skill set that we used to have in this country to be self-reliant, People knew how to deal with knives. They knew how to deal with fire. That was part of our history. It's literally part of our history. And right now, those two things are dangerous weapons. They're dangerous weapons in the eyes of the law, and they're dangerous weapons in the hands of a neophyte who doesn't know what in the hell they're doing. And unfortunately, if you look at every survival kit out there, and I agree with having a cutting edge and fire in survival kits, but if the user does not know how to use the cutting edge and fire, then you might as well give Cody a gun. He doesn't understand which way the bullet comes out, right? Yeah. So a loss of skill set is a loss of self-reliance, which is a loss of freedom, which is a loss of confidence, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I would throw guns into that same same category. You know, years ago, there was weapon safety in, in high schools, yeah, uh, you know, in in most high schools, and and now you know it's it's the exact opposite of that. And similarly, you know, a lot of wh- wh- why it's so divisive, legislation wise, is a, is just a, a lack of understanding. You know, it's being scared of something that you don't don't understand, uh, and thinking that that this is inherently dangerous, even though it's an inanimate object. And and it it ultimately boils down to the end user. I mean, you know, fifty years ago, you could order. Uh, shotguns through through the mail through a Sears catalog, you know, and have it delivered. Yeah. I mean, like gun, guns are are the least available they've ever been in the history of this country right now, and and, and they're they're you know uh, causing more problems from a nefarious standpoint now than they ever were when when they were a lot easier to get. You know, it's just uh, so yeah. I mean, it's it's a strange dichotomy that way, but yeah, it is. Um, um, I, I would like to. Uh, 
divert a little bit just to uh, kind of your background in terms of where you grew up and, and just kind of what your childhood was like in terms of, of how it led to you getting into uh, what you did. I read your bio on the website, but just for, for the listener, if you could kind of synopsize that. Sure. Yeah. Um, I was a, a born a military brat, an Air Force brat. So we moved a lot because my dad was being kicked around. My dad was a pilot in Vietnam. And uh, so I grew up kind of because we kept moving and leaving my friends, which was a big buzzkill for me, I got way into nature, you know, and my dad was into nature too. So was my mom. You know, we were, I remember going to the Boundary Waters when we lived in Minnesota when I was a kid and yeah. drinking right out of the lakes, you know, portaging with the canoes, catching northern pike, blah, blah, blah. So because I'm an only child, people tell me that explains a lot about me. <laughs> but, you know, I, I was in constantly moving. I spent a lot of time outdoors. Um, so I don't have a fancy story. I wasn't raised by two wolves. You yeah. know, I, I just I have a, a fairly normal upbringing and uh, a, a decent upbringing. But what I've, I think I've always been interested in doing more with less. And I've always been interested in how'd they do that? You know, how yeah. do these people live out in the back country? And, and I was fairly rural. I went to high school in Wyoming and yeah, we were on acid and mushrooms and drunk off our ass, but we were doing it in the woods. Yeah. You know? So I have a lot of backcountry time just because some of the rural environments I grew up in, which were pivotal times in a kid's life, junior yeah. high, high school, you know, where, you know, in my high school in Wyoming, during hunting season, I didn't hunt as a kid. I was kind of like an oddball because everyone else did. And like half the high school guys were gone because they were out hunting. So even though um, I can have some uh, liberal biases, I have a lot of conservative, conservative biases too. I grew oh. up around ranchers. I grew up around cowboys. I grew up around stone hippies. I grew up around a lot of different people. Did you play and any sports? I think that uh, it, it's an art to, as you know, uh, leadership is a big part of what I do. Mm -hmm. um, anyone in, in an instructor, whatever the profession is, that's a leadership role. And you can make or break a student. Yeah. And so what I try to do in my courses is make people stronger, make people better, make people freer. And and so I'm I'm really into that, and I'm regaling back to to that again. But I don't have a really fancy upbringing, man. You did, know, did you play any sports growing nature up? Nature and you know, and wanting to have more nature. Yeah. Did you uh, Did you play any sports growing up? I did. You couldn't. I couldn't play the football, and I was a stoner in high school. <laughs> so all the stoners played soccer. Yeah. So I love to play stock, soccer because. Our, uh, uh, we had an African, like literally from like South Africa, he was going to the university there and he would have a pony keg in his shitty Toro. He had like a Toro <laughs> commercial old van, like for Toro mowers. Yeah. And, and, and he was like, you know, we would, he would take me out and they would slaughter a goat because that's traditionally in the African village, what they did. And so I played soccer because the losers could play soccer and I played hockey because the losers could play hockey. And that yeah. was about it. <laughs> That's a trip. Um, was there a kind of a light switch moment for you where you, you said, 
this is what I want to do from a survival instruction standpoint, or was it gradual? There was a light switch moment at one point. And uh, when I spent several months in jail for selling acid, which I kind of mentioned, I was sent, they were going to send me to the state mental institution for treatment in Wyoming. And my parents said, no, you're not sending our only son to the nut house for treatment. And I got some really crazy stories because I was in jail long enough to have people come and go about people smearing feces on the wall. And that that doesn't sound like a good treatment place. So they sent me to a drug rehab in in Arizona um, before I was living here. And we had this dude that used to take us on day hikes, take all the drug addicts out in the woods, right? And keep in mind, I've been in an orange jumpsuit in a cell for several months. And I went out to this place in Sedona, Arizona called Boynton Canyon, which if if you you haven't Googled it, you should, because it's gorgeous. And it blew my mind. Um, It was all nature all at once. And I don't know if I started crying or whatever, but I'd just gone through a lot of bullshit being in jail for a long time with the legal system, still looking at three to eight years in prison if I didn't pee in a cup and the cup was the right color, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And when he took me on this day hike into this beautiful wilderness area, I remember the impact that had on me. And that's when I decided I want to share this and how it makes me feel with other people. I didn't know it was survival skills at the time, but I knew it was nature-based. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I mean, at, uh, and so from that point, did you seek out instruction and, and try to get into it kind of full-time that way? Or where did you go from there? Yeah, I took my first course with Boulder Outdoor Survival School a long time ago, and then I ended up teaching for them. And then uh, there's a, a gatherings we go to, primitive skills gatherings, and I met a guy named Morris Kachansky, who I mentioned before, and immediately flew to Alberta, Canada to prostrate myself at his feet as the Boreal Survival Master. And this is before a lot of people knew about Morris. He'd done stuff with Swedish military and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, the reason why everyone wears their knife around their neck, including me, is because of Moore's. The reason people are into Mora knives, Moore is a town in Sweden, we could talk about knives later, is because of Moore's. He introduced that to most of North America. And, of course, by default, I introduced that on a TV show to a lot of other people as well. And I, that man, I, I, I was dirtbag broke. He agreed to train with me. This is a master. Picture a Zen master. I'm coming up. He picked me up from the airport. And as payment, I gave him a bundle of seep willow, which is a certain stick here that makes fire really well. God knows how they, I got it into Canada. That wouldn't happen today. <laughs> and I brought a case of tuna fish. So I gave him a case of tuna fish, a bundle of seep willow, and I think some yucca alata for fireboards for a hand drill for a month of his time where I yeah. lived on site in a trailer in his backyard because he has an acreage. And he accepted that bullshit payment <laughs> with grace. Yeah. And it was like, oh, Cody, I see. How do you use the seep willow and yucca? And I showed him and go, oh, I see you gave me a lifetime supply of handrail material. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I did. And I trained with him for, I think, three weeks. And it was life-changing for me. Yeah. Like, like you probably have with your mentors, I got to train with the master when I was super green yeah. and just starting out. And his integrity 
his his integrity with skills, his integrity with training, his no bullshit attitude. He wasn't a dick. He was very gentle, very patient, means a lot to me. And when I look back on that time I spent with him, and I could say the same for Dave Gansey, my desert survival mentor, and other people, it's foundationally why I am who I am. And it's foundationally why I have zero fucking tolerance for phony survival experts on TV or whatever, and the people that promote them and make lots of money promoting them. Yeah. It's dangerous. It's gotten people killed. And I didn't learn that from my mentors that way. You have to have integrity when you're dealing with people's lives or you should get the fuck out of the kitchen. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I, I mean, the the passion that you exude in in talking about that, I think, speaks volumes to, uh, you know, to your your integrity and how, how serious you take it, which you should. I mean, I, I agree. Like, there, there's a lot of bullshit out there that, uh, you know, that ends up getting people killed or, do you, or hurt. Do you get that? You know what I think? I don't know yeah. if you could make a whole podcast out of it, but I'll just say it like it is. Discovery Channel didn't know anything about properly vetting someone of your caliber. Yeah. They didn't know. How do yeah. I know? Google my co-host and you'll find out how I know. Yeah. You know, but it, what would be interesting to me, because I don't know anything about your world, is if you were to train a television executive how to properly vet someone who's been in the U.S. military, what would you tell them? To me, the, the tough part is is just that, is training somebody to, to vet that. I think no different than, you know, it's, I, I guess I could I could throw the same question. How, how would you teach somebody that doesn't know anything about it to vet somebody to me, like the, the key to being able to vet somebody is you knowing it, you know, like, so, so I, you know, I can't teach somebody to, to call a, a seal bullshit or not. Like I'll know it that fucking quick, you know, and, and, and any guys who are legit operators are going to spot, like, you'll know the dude that walks in the room, like, yeah, that that's the fucking guy or that's not the guy without even fucking talking to him, you know? And so, yeah, I can't teach that to to an executive, you know? And so to me, instead of them teaching that is, is hire somebody who is legit and have them do the vetting to me is, yeah. is the, is the secret sauce for that. But. Okay. I, I thought you'd say that, but I, I just had to ask a dumb question, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, so I, yeah, I see it all the time I mean, you see the same thing again. And I probably in every industry, I mean, take, all those fucking chef shows that are possible, uh, popular, you know, some similarly, I think there's a bunch of fucking no, nothing has been's on those. There's, you know, dog training shows where, you know, people with good personalities and, and yeah. know the right people, you know, get into spots. I mean, we'll take Caesar Milan. I mean, I don't think he's a complete fucking idiot. Um, you know, but is he the best trainer I've seen? No, and not even close. Uh, but his story, his brand and everything else makes for a, an entertaining show. Like I'm not here to say any negative, anything negative about the guy, but what I will say is, is there are, um, you know, a, a shitload of people that I know that are far, far better suited, uh, you know, for a program like that than he is. And I'm not putting myself in that category, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, the, the shitty part with, with TV and reality TV is exactly that, you know, and you can take the music industry as the same thing is that, you know, the people that end up being famous are the people that, that the, the assholes in charge want to be famous, you know, and, and, yeah. and want to be in those positions. I mean, how many, you know, little, little hole in the wall bars in fucking Nashville or San Diego or anywhere. Do you see somebody on open mic night that is one of the most talented musicians I've ever seen in my life that I've never heard of and never seen again after that. 
but then you yeah. have, you know, Britney Spears and, and other people that, you know, can barely um, not get booed off the stage on karaoke night. Uh, and, and they're, you know, fucking billionaires from, uh, you know, from the establishment, putting them in, in the right position and packaging it just right and whatever. So, you know, I think that's pretty consistent across uh, just about every industry, which uh, which is frustrating. But um, what was the, the path like from uh, from when you that life changing three week moment to where ultimately and I, and I don't want to focus all on the show, but because, again, it's it's something that people can actually watch as a, as a representation uh, how, how did that happen? And, and, you know, by all means, shit talk all you want or, or expose whatever, whatever you want on discovery as far as how that show goes. But I know a lot of people, uh, are curious about, you know, if it's, if certain, uh, experiences are staged or not, or how realistic it is, or just kind of how, how the whole thing fucking works, frankly. Well, it's TV's all produced, right? Because that's why they made television producers, and in my contract, if, if I said certain things, um, I'm liable for $5 million. Yeah. Okay. That's how I'll preface this conversation. Um, so, you know, TV is TV. I think that if you, if you're a real doctor, but you're playing the part of a physician on TV, then that's cool. Cause what we just talked about is, you know, it takes one to know one, right? Yeah. If you really want to vet a, a, a seal, you should have a seal do the vetting. Yeah. If you want to vet an outdoor surveillance instructor, likewise. How that usually works, and I've done a lot of television well before dual survival, a lot, um, back into the 90s. Not like network, well, network, but like most, here, here's how it's devolved, and I'm using that word on purpose. Back in the day, uh, survival stuff on TV used to be a news crew. Usually there was an incident Sometime it was just a storyline, like Dateline, Dateline NBC had me on a couple times, and one was a lost hiker scenario. I don't remember if there was a backstory, and then one was a winter survival segment. Typically, it was, you know, CBS, NBC, whatever. Some of this was pre-cable. They would want an informational segment on how to survive X, Y, and Z, right? So you'd take the newscaster out. You'd make a big X on the ground with newspaper. The Sky News chopper would come down and you'd signal for rescue. And I'm literally talking to you about something that I've done in the desert. And it was, it, it was informative. It was not meant to be a flashbang. It was not meant to be sensationalized. It was like, hey, it's getting hot in Arizona. We got Cody Lundin here to show us how to stay alive in the desert, you know? Since then. Before Sarah discovered chumbacasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah often thinks about the old boring Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. <laughs> Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's devolved into a bunch of phony survival experts on TV 
based on ratings and, of course, money, the king of all things. And I've literally been around long enough where I've watched this de-evolution of survival skills on TV. And it got more personality-centric. You can say what you want about Steve Irwin. I'm not necessarily a fan. But, you know, I was a fan of Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, where back in the day, the star of the show was nature. It yeah. was wildlife. And that dude that, that, that Marlon Perkins would throw out there, here, whatever his name was, run and check that, go and hug that Cape Buffalo. You know, there was that <laughs> dude, because Marlon was old, right? But it was always focused on the wildlife. Yeah. Along comes Steve Irwin, and it's focused on him. The wildlife is kind of a sidekick. That's what's happened with survival training. It's no longer a skills-based, we want to know. It's a purely entertainment-based thing where, just like you said, we're engaging with someone who might not know shit, but they're an interesting personality that makes us a lot of money and yeah. for our corporate members or whatever it is. Yeah. The reason why that's disgusting and disappointing is because unlike cake making, you know, where oh, I made a crappy chocolate cake, who cares? These, this programming can kill people. Yeah. You know, what happens with TV, I think it's theta waves. This is all not my idea. This has been proven. TV is hypnotic, literally, the radiation it puts off. I've already talked to you about the power of imagery. Imagery rules. Imagery comes up into someone's memory in crisis situations when the written word is long forgotten. So picture this. Dozens of phony survival instructors on a hypnotic medium with imagery and sexy stuff that people are sitting here watching and they're absorbing those bullshit skills whether they want to absorb them or not. So what comes out in an emergency scenario, real time in the backcountry, is potentially those bullshit skills. Yeah. That's how dangerous this really is. Yeah. Um, people don't, I know I'm going down a well, no, rabbit I'm, hole, but it's one, it's a rabbit hole where I live, right? Yeah. Because I'm a survival instructor. So yeah. that's how it's devolved in a bird's eye view about content and context. Now, speaking of content, what you typically have, and I get them once a week, once a month, and for many years, I'll get the email from the casting whatever. Hey, we're putting, uh, usually it's a major cable network is having a new survival show and X, Y, and Z. Do you want to send a reel? Do you want to send a casting tape or whatever? And they'll look for you you being the person that has the most crap on the wall online, not the person in a little hole-in-the-wall bar who's the best musician you've ever heard that you'll never hear from again. It's the person who's the whore that's yeah. out there wanting to be on TV. That's a whole other dangerous thing. Yeah. People that are desperate to be on TV lie. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you know? yeah. So then yeah, we've so. got this credibility problem right off the bat and a problem with who this person functionally is as a potential sociopath. Yeah. So they'll email you. They'll like you by basically what you send them, and then X, Y, and Z scenario happens. Now, for dual survival, I was never asked, never asked for a professional resume, really? and yet they were marketing me to the world as a world-class survival expert, whatever that is. Now, by some strange coincidence or chance, Discovery Channel actually did hire a professional survival instructor, probably by mistake, you know, because that's not the, what they're usually doing. 
There was never any vetting of me professionally. There was vetting of me to make sure I wasn't a violent criminal psychopath so they wouldn't get busted later, right, yeah. by hiring a violent criminal psychopath. Yeah. But you would think, because how they originally pitched me, they got busted with Man versus Wild. They got busted with Mr. Grills, right, who's not a survival instructor at all. He plays one on TV. They got popped. Discovery yeah. Channel got busted. So they wanted to show with credibility, literally, I have the emails, credibility and competence. So I thought that they would do some professional vetting because they were already behind the eight ball on their lack of credibility in their survival programming. And I was wrong. Yeah. I, I, I was, you know, I was wrong. Um, and they didn't vet. And the, the, the fallout from that is uh, an easy Google search to see the, the train wreck that that show became through lack of leadership and mismanagement, which all could have be ideally dealt with with proper vetting of the people on the show, right? Yeah. If you want credibility, ask for a professional resume. You remember that? It was on a piece of paper. Now it's all online. And yeah. maybe if you're really racy, you actually had points of contact who yeah. could back up your bullshit because we all know that resumes are some padded BS. Yeah. None of that ever happened. And so, I thought that strange at the time, and but now I see it for what it was. No, for sure. I, I think where it's where it's tricky is back to one of the points you made earlier about making information or, or teaching slash instructing, presenting it, however you want to coin it, in a manner with which people are are engaged and interested enough to retain it. And I think that's where where the slippery slope is: is that if if the subject matter experts that are legitimately you know the best at at what they do but are so fucking boring that nobody wants to to watch or pay attention then it doesn't matter you know the the shitty part is that they've overcorrected to a point where where all they're they're thinking about is who's the most entertaining who's got the biggest social media following who's the the flashiest you know sexiest example of of somebody we can bring on the show and that's that's who gets the vote uh, I, I am curious in, in, in thinking and in, in hearing you kind of talk about the progression of how it used to be versus what it's turned into. I can't help but think that the show Survivor probably played a huge role in in the, the degradation of what you're talking about. Absolutely. I mean, that show is not about survival skills at yeah, all. I mean, it's, it's, it's really it's, it's about who, who can piss the fewest people off. And I mean, it's a popularity contest, really, you know, because right. if you're too good, you're and too big of a threat. I, ironically, our cameramen worked on that show too. They were, they were, they filmed many, many seasons of Survivor and there was some interesting stories behind the scenes. Well beyond that, I think it was in, uh, 2000. Survivor is an incredibly successful monetary, monetarily successful, if that's what you term success as. Yeah. It's a blasphemy as far as any. We're teaching people to screw other people for money. Yeah. It's Lord of the Flies. It's a way your tribe gets killed. Can you imagine if a SEAL team were trying to fuck each other over on a yeah. mission? You'd all no, be dead, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, it's a you social experiment. You stand behind your people, yeah. and that's not what the show is about. But years ago, I think in 2000, Playboy Magazine interviewed me about this new show called Survivor. You know, And at that time, what I got told by the uh, the, the, the reporter that was interviewing me was they tried to do it more realistic, but people on the show quickly realized 
that if they just sat under the coconut tree and didn't do anything, they would conserve calories and try to last the longest, right? Yeah. So they had to initiate these BS games they do now, one, to engage and make money, but also because people instinctually knew, I don't want to move my body because I need the calories I have. Yeah. But the tubes of sunscreen, the buckets of rice, that was going on in 2000, according to this guy from Playboy magazine. Again, TV is TV, but you're right. If you look at the learning context of that show, it's I'm going to screw you so I can win. That is where everyone dies in a real yeah. survival situation. Yeah. We haven't really talked about teamwork. I'm sure you're the king of teamwork. I can imagine <laughs> that SEAL teams are the apex in teamwork because you're literally depending on your team at times for survival. Tribes were too. If you look back at whatever your heritage is, your people were tribal just like mine back in the day and everyone mattered, right? The weakest link is going to screw us all. So we want us to all succeed. And it's not some everyone's a winner. No, it's not some politically, it's, it's survival. Like yeah. we need to all be on the same page. We need to all do this to, to, to get it done. And so, yeah, that I don't even consider that a, a survival show. It's so devolved. Yeah. It's an interesting probably show on, on the psychology of, of sociopaths yeah. and screwing other people for money, but that's about it. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, uh, yeah, as successful as it's been, it's, I think it's been a detriment to the, to the industry and, and to, kind of the, the principles behind, uh, you know, surviving that way. I mean, it's, it's to well, me, it's... I'll, I'll go a step further. In my opinion, and I've thought about this a lot. And um, one of the, I think probably the worst thing that's happened, and I know that survival TV shows have turned on a lot of people to real trainers. I've had them as students myself. But overall, if you were to pull back and look at it from a bird's eye view, I think the worst thing that's happened to the industry of survival training are uh, survival TV shows. They're yeah. wildly dangerous. They're wildly out of context. They're featuring people who are not real survival experts that then might start their own school and start buying their own BS. It's really, really done a bad thing for the industry that I'm not sure will ever be repaired. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, even not being a survival expert, I, I can see that writing on the wall with uh, the misrepresentations. I mean, I, I wouldn't consider myself a survival expert uh, by any stretch, but I, I have been in enough environments uh, enough times to to be able to see when somebody knows what the fuck they're talking about versus not for sure. And, and it seems like overwhelmingly most of them don't. Um, I'm going to throw a, a hypothetical at you uh, that, that may uh, be a shot across the bow boilerplate uh, dumb question for you. Uh, maybe not. We'll see. But uh, so hypothetically, and I know it's going to depend wildly on the environment, but let's say the challenge is we're going to drop you in an environment and, and you don't get to know what it is. You don't get to know if it's, you know, water heavy or, you know, super hot, super cold, humid versus dry, what have you. But there, there's a backpack that you can bring with you. Um, and, and let's say it's a, a standard size, you know, backpack that you would have, uh, at, at a college campus, you know, a, a book bag size backpack. What are you going to put in that backpack? You, you, I warned you, I, <laughs> you've asked me, I'll ask you one. All right. You're going on a life threatening mission. Yeah. You don't know who you're going to be with. I'm not going to tell you who the enemy is or what part of the world, we're just going to, whatever they call it, we're going to drop you at yeah. night. See, I can answer and, that and, question. 
Okay, so answer my question. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to have, uh, in terms of gear, it's going to be all black, right? Is because we're going to be at. It's going to be at night, or I'm going to choose for it to be at night. So everything's going to be all black. I'm going to have a, a medium range long gun, say a, probably a 300 blackout, uh, and I'm going to have my my standard secondary pistol. I'll have, uh, I'd say, five or six magazines for the primary, one in the secondary, and two spares. I'll have a basic uh, medical kit, a basic uh, E&E kit, uh, our, our standard loadout communication device-wise, uh, enough rations for a few, few days' worth of food, um, a GPS, uh, a flare setup, a, a strobe, an IR strobe, um, terms of loadout with explosives, probably at least two small breaching charges, three or four small Swedish hand grenades, um, and a, and a really shitty attitude. That's uh, that's everything <laughs> I'm going to put in there. But, you know, cause that, that's going to be my most cookie cutter. Like, is it going to be exactly what I would take for environment X or environment Y? No, but that's, that's the, the most generic general purpose loadout I could take. That's going to blanket cover as many scenarios as possible okay. but touche and yeah. you answered me go go ahead and then i'll answer you well, i was just going to say you know it's a little bit apples to oranges it's, it's easier for me to answer that because it's a very specific mission that i know we're going to be on like everything is going to be pretty assault oriented you know so so you're going to have kind of the, the same basic gear now whether we do that in a in an arid uh, desert environment versus a jungle environment, like our loadout isn't going to change a ton. There's going to be tweaks here and there to it. Maybe the camo pattern is different or, you know, if it's super arid, yeah, I'm going to be carrying more water than I would if I'm going to the jungle. But, you know, by and large, it's easier to say, here's our assault loadout. Uh, and, and there's going to be more nuance, you know, environmentally, but. Okay. Well, that's impressive. And uh, I, I'll do the same. Okay. This is very generic, right? Yeah. So, I'm. I don't know where I'm going, and I have a book bag essentially. Right? What's in the book bag? God. I. If you part of the reason I like primitive living skills is it helps define what's a need, not a want. Being out in the bush, or frankly, being in town. So it's nice to know primitive skills, but it can help define what you'd carry for modern gear. When you find out how important this has been for several hundred thousand years, it's probably important now. So like we talked earlier, I'm going to have some cutting edge, right? And I'm going to leave it at that. I would like to have some way to create fire. Ideally, your shelter, your first primary shelter always is your clothing, regardless of my lack of clothing. And partly the reason I wear less clothing is to acclimate to the environment, but I don't know where you're going to throw me. So I'd want adequate clothing for whatever the environment would be the cutting edge, the way to make fire, and ideally, uh, you know, some sort of container, you know, and probably uh, I'm assuming I would have to disinfect my water within that container. And then maybe some sort of shelter, the archival shelter would be a tarp, right? And I don't know what I'm doing if I'm trying to live off the land like those Philippine guys or, you know, because of course we would like, you know, before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah often thinks about the old boring Sarah. Yes. And wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Ch -ch 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 -chum. 
Chumba Casino has over 100 casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Food, but the thing about survival training is most people that go to a survival training camp or whatever, they're that's what we call camping in Arizona. Yeah. You don't have all your kit in a survival situation. It's the absence of the kit potentially that makes it a survival situation. So if you train with all the gadgets in your survival kit and my MREs and whatever, that's not survival training. That's fucking camping, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah. if you want to survival train, you train down dirty. You yeah. know, you train how to use the tool, but then you train when you don't have the tool. Because that's yeah. probably why you're in the survival situation in the first place. Yeah. So I would go with those basics. And if you think about indigenous people, if you're an Inuit or a Kalahari Bushman, you'd you'd have that cutting edge. You'd have that way to make fire. You'd want shelter from the environment, primarily thermoregulation via your clothes. And then maybe with exterior, like the tarp we talked about, you've already given me the backpack. So that's one container I can use. And some sort of containment method you know, probably steel so I could disinfect maybe the water or I could put it over my fire and boil it. And I'm going to leave it there because I don't like generic questions because they yeah. can confuse people. Yeah. But those are some of the big things that I'm sure you guys had in your yeah. e kit and that a lot of Native peoples would have had in their E&E kit and what I'd recommend general purpose for whatever bioregion you're finding yourself on planet Earth. Yeah. No, I, I love it. Um and agreed. Yeah. I mean, I just, uh, I like, I like the hypothetical cause I, uh, I'm just curious about it, I guess. But, uh, as you guys know, as I have gotten older, I've paid a little closer attention to my health and specifically the nutrition aspect. You got to have good fuel if you're going to feed the machine or fuel the combat chassis, as they say. And this next partner is a product that I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens um, because I, I noticed a both brain fog and joint pain issue that uh, has just kind of crept up as I've gotten older. And uh, also, like, from a bloating and gut health standpoint, uh, just as I get older, I kind of started to notice that. And I started taking Athletic Greens, and I like to, to try everything, um, you know, for a few weeks before I really kind of give it the – the thumbs up or thumbs down and this stuff I, I noticed within about 10 days um, just kind of a, a bettering of symptoms in all those areas, less bloating, um, more kind of brain cognition and less joint pain. Um, and this stuff is, is super high concentrated. It's uh, just one scoop a day that you can put into really anything that you want to drink or normally drink. It's got 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, uh, and adaptogens. And um, it's easy uh, light from a lifestyle-friendly standpoint. It, it, it's really easy to take. It ta- uh, contains less than one gram of sugar. So whether it's insulin or <clears throat> if you're diabetic or you just don't want the carbohydrates, et cetera, 
uh, it's good to go there and has uh, just really high quality nutrient dense ingredients that your body needs uh, while it still still actually tastes pretty good. Uh, I do sleep better and recover uh, noticeably faster. Like I, I don't I don't feel as sore on it. <clears throat> uh, and the mental clarity is is definitely noticeable. Uh, and it's not very expensive, um, which is, you know, not that I'm not willing to, uh, you know, pay for, for something that's, that's good, but it's, it's less than three bucks a day. And, uh, the, the founder actually started it when, uh, kind of a similar story experienced a lot of gut health issues and, uh, you know, wanted to, to address that. And so that's kind of where it stems from and, and, uh, springboards off of, but, um, it, it really is an all in one nutritional experience and, and kind of a, a health insurance for protecting, um, you know, your, your joints and your body and things of that nature. So I strongly encourage it. I've had good success with it and I think you guys uh, would dig it too. It, uh, they're actually, uh, <clears throat> going to give you a free one year supply of uh, vitamin D and five free travel pa- packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash mic drop, all one word. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash mic drop. And uh, go ahead and check those guys out and uh, give it a shot. I think you'll dig it. All right, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push the envelope with another potential boilerplate question here just uh, <laughs> for shits and giggles. Uh, is there a style of knife that you tend to carry more frequently, say a kukri or what have you? Like if you okay, put it in- well that that's a that's a good question because you've premised it with style, which All allows right. me to provide the context. Yeah, yeah, I like Scandinavian knives, and it's not just because of my Viking ancestors. Um, again, Moore's. I, I mentioned that my my mentor in Canada turned me on to that style of knife. Um, and this is kind of coming from his mouth, but I've proven it over the last 30 plus years. It's what I like in a general bush knife too. Mm-hmm. I like a knife where the, the handle's oval. I don't like sharp corners. You know, these calluses are from lifting, right? And doing ma- something called manual labor. But if you do a lot of knife work like, like I do, if you have squ- a square edged handle, you're going to pay for it because it's going to rip up your hands. Yeah. So I like an oval, comfortable handle. I like a handle that fits in my palm, okay, so I, and I like a, a blade. I like carbon steel. We can talk about that later. And I like the Scandinavian knives, whether it's a Finnish puko or whatever, that has the, the literal real wide uh, bevel for sharpening. You could be Stevie Wonder and sharpen this knife, right? There is no <laughs> three-millimeter landski that I have to – no, you can just put this knife down and tactily feel it lock into the sharpening board, which I make myself. I make my own boards, and you can sharpen this blade. That blade is about as long as, as the handle is, so they're pretty okay. much equal. And the cutting edge, and this is important because it equates with power and leverage, I like where the blade comes right out of the handle. And a lot of people have these pommels or these, you know, we, we've made an inch where it's dull for some reason, and then the blade starts. When you're cutting anything, especially in backcountry, the further you have that stick out toward the tip of the blade, the more power and leverage you lose. So I maximize most of my knife work. 90% of it is done on that one inch of blade right coming out of the handle. So I don't like pommels, weird ass guards or anything. I want the power coming right out of my hand. So I have that oval handle that comfortably fits in my hand. It's not overly long, not overly short. I have the uh, carbon steel blade. 
with a wide bevel on it so I can sharpen it. I don't like saw blades. I don't like any bullshit on my blade. We'll get into that later. Carbon steel because I can strike a spark on the back to make a flint steel fire. And it's easier for me to sharpen on my sharpening kits. And this isn't my idea. This is Moore's. And this is for your listeners. He gets a, a, an old hardcover book from the thrift store. He was a real book nut. He was a scholar. Or that fake paneling, you know, the cheap paneling yeah. on the Brady Bunch trailer, cuts yeah. that down to the width of, of, of wet and dry sandpaper. And it's about maybe this thick or so. So you can just go down the sheet of sandpaper. And for his field sharpening board, he'll cut out a piece of plywood paneling and he'll put double-sided carpet tape on it. And he'll put 400 grit wet dry sandpaper on one side and 600 on the other, push them down on the tape. And that's all I've used. No shit for more than 30 years. Oh. It will not work on stainless steel because the metal is too hard. Uh, we don't like stainless steel. I don't like stainless steel. One, because I'm not in Hawaii. I'm not worried about rust or whatever. I like the spark off the bat because I make it. I can make fire with my knife and I can sharpen it easily and maintain that blade. The point kind of lines up with the back of the knife. I do like a full tang knife, although the, the moras tend to be rat tang, where the knife's not the literal width of the handle, but it's better than nothing. I do not like folders. I like, again, a full tang blade, and that's pretty much what I'm looking uh, in a knife. Now, there's some Scandi knives when I was training in Norway. Uh, we had a Sami person help us on set. The Samis are the original native people. They got pushed into the real shitty areas of, of Finland and Scandinavia by my people. He told me the Vikings, you Vikings actually pushed us out to the more marginal regions because you took all of our good farmland. I was like, sorry, dude, I had no idea. He gave me <laughs> as a gift a massive, the blade was like that long. And, and I forget what they called it, but it was like a small machete. And they said in combat in, in World War II, they used to just cut the heads off the German shoulders, fucking cut their head right off with this Is it a scramasix? I don't uh, know. But it was a big, it looked like a Morris Scandi knife because it was Scandinavian. But, whoa, it was a whopper blade. And they cut everything and did everything with that blade. Yeah. So that's what I like in a blade. Um, be, and I've proven that over time. It's not my idea. I picked it up from Moore's. But I can tell you this. Most people that make knives don't use their product, period, yeah, because yeah. They, they suck. Yeah. No, I, I, there's a lot of uh, beautiful, fancy artwork-style knives that aren't worth a shit to actually use out there. I mean, it seems like that's the, the more popular, famous <coughs> excuse me, famous pieces out there now. But um, is my assumption that uh, you're not a fan of the saw or serration from a sharpening standpoint? What do you mean by that? Do you not like uh, serrated blades or or the the saw style blade because it's a, it's impossible to sharpen simply? I just don't like serrated blades for my context for what I do. I'm not cutting French bread. Right. I understand serrated blades in in your application, maybe on rubber dinghies and cutting webbing and certain things like that. Uh, so I'm not poo pooing serrated knives. I'm poo pooing them for what I do for a living. Okay. So the challenge to sharpen is pretty evident, and there's just no – when I'm dealing with a knife in the backcountry, most of what I'm doing is 45-degree angle cuts. Yeah, I'm pushing down and using – I tend to, to, to carve with my torso. I'll isosceles off standing if I'm standing 
hold my knife almost at full arm's length in case I slip. There's only a few inches of travel and I'm powering through with the strength of my upper body and we're cutting in 45 degree cuts. We're not doing this like you're cutting French bread. Yeah. That's the inherent nature of a serrated blade is to do this. So most bushcraft, you're just pushing and cutting. And that's another reason I like that real wide bevel on Scandinavian knives because it bites into wood and stuff real well. You yeah. know, um, so you're, I'll tell you one quick story without the person behind it because I don't want to get a slander case on my ass, but you'll like it because they were special forces. Yeah. There's a person I know that designed a knife and every bit of the knife around the perimeter had something different to it for a specialized use. And that was supposed to be the sell point of this knife. With that person, by the way, this person could not sharpen the knife that they made. So they had to have the maker send them a new knife every time they used it because they didn't know how to sharpen the knife that they designed. First oh. red flag, right? Yeah, yeah. What that person fails to understand is a generic knife, a knife that's simplistic in design. It's the user's responsibility to add intent to that knife blade. If you have a specialized blade, the specialization is, uh, it's not a benefit because it, 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 it narrows you into that specialization. So what I like about simple Scandinavian blades is I can skin an elephant or I can pick my toenails or I can do whatever I want. It's the user's skill that goes into a generic knife design that does the work. It's not a specialized blade that then inhibits what I can do with that blade. So a less is more in essence when it comes to knives? It's a more is more. It's really like I can do more with a simple blade. Now, we're not on some SEAL mission right. where J JSOC or however you pronounce this designs some special thing because we need to puncture someone's tire. This is yeah. a general purpose bush knife, and that's the context of which I'm approaching you. The yeah. simple blade with the simple bevel, with the simple handle, with the carbon steel simplicity will pay off in the most circumstances with the variables we've talked about in the backcountry, hands down. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so similarly to uh, the survival industry and, and how TV shows have corrupted the the societal mainstream idea of, of what it is, pop culture has done the same thing with special operations. You know, <laughs> like for, for us carrying blades, it's it's. I would say ex almost exclusively from a utility standpoint, it's for cutting line for, you know, basic shit that you would carry a normal fucking pocket knife for. I mean, if we find, and it's the same thing with a lot of hand to hand stuff that I think is a misconception. Yes, we do training in, in certain, you know, combatives, jujitsu and striking and, and prisoner handling and, and things like that. However, um, that, that isn't our main, um, focus as it relates to training, you know, shooting, moving, communicating, assaulting targets is, is our bread and butter. So if we're at a point where we're going hands on with somebody or having to throw a knife or knife fight somebody, things have gone so fucking horribly wrong at that point, uh, you know, to where it, it, it doesn't matter if you're good at it or not, because you're so fucked anyway, you know, that you've, you've wasted your time, you know, practicing to the, to the level that you would need to practice those skills to be <laughs> competent enough at them to apply them in a combat scenario. It, it, it's just cost prohibitive, you know, but right. uh, so, you know, a lot of times people think like everybody is a fucking black belt wizard and a, in a Steven Seagal knife throwing uh, wizard and in this, you know, Jedi warrior with all these obscure, 
different types of weapons. And while, yes, we use some of those in certain capacities, overwhelmingly, you know, shooting, uh, you know, and moving and communicating with big groups of people through targets is, is overwhelmingly what we practice and, and what we're good at. But, um, uh, one of the, one of the things I was curious of, um, you know, outside the blade stuff is, is that I, I can only imagine that, you know, companies probably solicit you nonstop to endorse their products or try it or recommend it or whatever. Do you do any of that? Or is there, um, is there a kind of a product list that you have that you kind of endorse or, or sign off on or recommend in, in certain applications or do you, do you stay, it's stay in, away from Interesting it? you ask me. I've never endorsed anyone for anything. Yeah. And part of that is because the people that were approaching me for endorsements, I didn't want to. Yeah. Because I know people and you know people who've endorsed whatever's not nailed down. Oh, yeah. That's called a slut, right? That's <laughs> yeah. not a, you know, if I endorse something and I, 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 I probably can be bought, right? I probably mm. could, we could all be bought for a certain price. Sure. But, I have literally dual survival, all this stuff. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. I've never endorsed a product. Yes, I've been hit on many times to endorse a product. It doesn't mean I won't endorse a product. But regarding knives, um, I didn't work with a company or be, was approached by a company. I'm pretty serious about my stuff. I'm very serious about my professional reputation. It's all I have. Yeah. It's all you have, right? Yeah. If you compromise your professional reputation as a dog trainer – one, you're, you're fucked financially. Eventually you're screwed. But as I can imagine, you have probably a certain oath of honor to integrity to your craft. I would imagine as a yeah. seal, I have mine big time. And that's part of the reason I butted heads with certain executives is I'm not going to compromise my craft. I'm not going to compromise my credibility and I'm going to do what I think's right to save as many people as possible. And that doesn't mean endorsing bullshit. So is is it uh, is the, is the following scenario uh, potentially something that you came across where it's a company X is willing to spend a fuck ton of money, you know, if we plug their product and you look at it and say that's yeah, a piece of shit, I would never, I would never use that or endorse it, and then that's when you have a problem with them. Well, you know, I might not be quite that blunt, yeah. but I'll give you a perfect example. And very few people, I've never mentioned this, let alone on a podcast, early season, season one, dual survival, Discovery Channel brings me in, and unfortunately, Dave, and has this shitty little table of gear, camping gear, we'll call it, that's very poorly made crap, okay? Mm -hmm. And kind of were asking me, you know, and, and, you know, what about this and what about this? And that was the first in-house endorsement. And I just looked at it and said, this, this stuff is garbage. You know, you're not, you're trying to do this made in China stuff, slap my name on it or whatever show's name on it. I'm not doing it. And here's why. 
and 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 that's that was the earliest time that I've been approached a lot before dual survival. But you have to have a pretty damn good product, or me to sell out for me to endorse that, yeah. or to 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 the pretty good product. Like I'll wholeheartedly endorse my instructors. In other words, the people that taught me that I the Moores, the Dave Gansies, yeah. and stuff like that. And I've screwed myself, man. I've lost a lot of money over not endorsing stuff. I'm, I'm not, and I you might say, what do you, what's your, what do you, what? I just can't do it, you know? Yeah. Um, and maybe there'll be a time in my life when I can do it, but I will be graceful and I'll said, I'll just try to, to back out. I'm not interested in hurting someone's feelings or shitting on someone. But I, I don't want to put my name on something that I don't believe in. Yeah. Um, and maybe that'll change. I hope my integrity holds intact. But if you look at some of the people I've worked with and all the stuff that's been endorsed and gone down, there's a, a line of it's, it's all about this. And I understand I'm a businessman, too. Again, as a professional survival instructor, as a Navy SEAL, as a very specific guard dog trainer, your integrity and your credibility and your professionalism and your dedication and your sacred honor to your client is everything. And that should not be breached. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, to me, the way I navigated and, and what makes sense to me is is a very simple question that I ask myself with, with any product. There's products I endorse, there's products that I don't. Is that, you know, is it something I either use or, or will slash would use? Then, yeah, I'm happy to say, yeah, you know, this is a great product. I've used it before and, and I would recommend it for situation X. Uh, if it's not, then I won't, you know, and it's really that simple. And, and you know, the line of products that I've developed over the years is, is honestly, it's, it's in result to not having what I wanted being out there. You know, there's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I have dog food, treats, supplements, uh, a collar and leash, a crate. You know, that were all, you know, basically collaboratively designed between me and a manufacturer to get it exactly how I wanted it because there wasn't another product out there. And so now it exists because that's what I wanted and I also sell it. But then there's also, I mean, I don't make remote collars, you know, but there's a couple brands that I, I use and endorse. They don't pay me to do it. I just, you know, if somebody says, hey, what, what remote collar would you recommend? And I say, well, you know, here, here's the two brands that, that I use. Uh, you know, so that, that's how I, I manage it. Uh, you know, some, some of them are actual endorsements. Some of them aren't, um, it just, you know, again, to me, it's, it's really irrespective of the financial component. It's, do I use this? Yes. This is what I use. You know, do I use this? No, I don't. And, and I'm not going to say, Hey, there's this product, no matter how much fucking money somebody offers, if it's not something that I, that I would actually use, you know, right. but another thing that your listeners should know is the tagline for my survival school is the more you know, the less you need. Yeah. I'm not no, a gear awesome. slut. I know yeah. them and I appreciate good gear. But to me, my product is extreme teaching. Yeah. My product is, is making you more confident. My product is showing you what you don't need. My product is showing you what you do need. My product is having you do more with less in a wilderness landscape. A high apex of skill is to go out there and get the job done with limited gear. I pride myself on that. And I'm not opposed to gear. I, yeah. I love good gear, but it's problematic for me to develop product when I'm, I won't say I'm a minimalist, but I'm really into doing more with less yeah, because no, that, that requires a higher apex of skill. 
And I just yeah. think it's a lot of fun too. Yeah. No, I, I, I completely understand and respect that is that, you know, especially based off of, you know, one of the statements you made earlier of when people find themselves in the positions of survival, it's because they don't have all the Gucci gear and stuff. Right. So yeah, I mean, it, it seems counterintuitive to have a bunch of products with your name on it that if you forget them, then it doesn't fucking matter how, <laughs> how cool or good they are anyway. Um, I am curious. I, I know you said, you know, discovery was the, the shittiest spot you found you're in, but has there been a, a moment that stands out in your mind where from a survival standpoint, where you were the closest to perishing that, uh, that, that kind of stands out. I was a little kid in Europe, like I mentioned, and uh, grade school. I forget which grade. And it was during the Christmas season, I remember. And my parents took me to Austria to ski. We were big into downhill skiing. If you've been to some Austrian ski resorts, they are massive. And I skied alone. Because, um, you know, I, they, they let me have apparently a little bit too much free latitude on this particular yeah. trip. How old were you? Grades, uh, probably seven, eight okay. years old. And I'm skiing. And we're not, it's not backcountry. It's a ski resort. But when it was getting, it was starting to get dusk. I thought, well, and there was a sign literally on the ski resorts that said Germany. Because you could ski into the next fucking country, you know. Yeah. And in my eight-year-old brain or whatever, it's like, oh, I, I need to ski to Germany because that's where I live. And so I skied in the wrong place. And then it got dark. And then and then the, the ski resort was closed. And keep in mind, if you're skiing, it's a winter survival situation right off the bat, right? And I'm a little kid. Little kids and elderly people are, are very responsive to hypothermia because in my case, I had less body mass because I'm yeah. a kid, Right. I'm not dressed for this epic adventure. I found my way to a ghost house, which is a little, it was a little house there that, that had a little restaurant and uh, very scared. And I was crying at this time. And I remember beating on the door because it was totally pitch black. No one's there. And I found this house by skiing back. That was literally where you could buy tea during the day. And I was beating on the door crying. And this old German woman, was ist das? You know, what is that? And she looked out and made these guys take me in and got me hot soup and got me in a snowcat back to the parking lot where my parents, my mom was super pissed at my dad, as you can <laughs> imagine. Yeah. And they brought me back to civilization. Now, picture yourself being an eight-year-old boy in a foreign country in the mountains in the wintertime with at no night. clue with what's going on. And you skied into the wrong country. Yeah. Early on that was a situation that could have turned very bad for yeah. me. And needless to say, I didn't have any skill set <laughs> back then <laughs> other than eating yeah. chocolates for Christmas or whatever. Yeah. That's probably the first time. Is that something that, um, that memory, has that ever popped into your head in some of the cold, cold environments as an adult? Not in the cold environments, but just in the gratitude environment, yeah. like being real thankful for that lady, being real sure. thankful she was there. I'll never forget her. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a really cool story. Um, what uh, so? What courses do you do you teach now, and how often? Sure. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I teach modern outdoor survival skills, which is dealing with modern fire, search and rescue. It's again the jeep breaking down. What do you do? I teach primitive living skills, uh, Stone Age technology, making fire sticks, and urban preparedness. A lot of my courses are two days, um, so it's just a weekend. It's fairly easy. 
I have two main types of courses, skills courses, where the client comes in, they can have their sleeping bag, no tents, their sleeping pad, they can bring their food, water bottles. We're essentially camping with no tents and learning the content. And this is important. We're learning content. And then I have contextual courses that kick your ass, that we're out there with limited gear, limited water, limited food, and we're moving through landscape and the, the course is in context. It's not just you're learning the content, but in the context of a threatening environment or threatening scenario. And they're very, very different. It's really, yeah, because one, you're actually have, having to rely on, on that skill set. It's one the thing other to, make a, to learn how to make a bow drill set, fire with sticks, where you're having your bologna sandwich and you're going to crawl into your sleeping bag and yuck it up with your co-students. It's another thing to learn how to make that bow drill set when you're grouchy, you slept under a tree with no gear, you're dehydrated and you don't have any food. Yeah. And the apex of skill, not that you'll remember it because of your state of mind, is learning the bow drill in that stress environment. That's a contextual course. That's a contextual skill, not a content skill. Yeah. So I do both of those courses from two days to I have a four-day urban preparedness to seven-day courses in survival. This is our 31st year at the Aboriginal Living Skills School. I teach winter survival, desert survival, because Arizona, I'm blessed. We have more geographical diversity in the shortest drive time of any place in North America. California has more, but it's a longer drive time. So I can literally do winter survival and desert survival and have with news crews literally back-to-back -back days because of the diversity wow. we have here. Yeah, man, that's awesome. Are, are the, uh, the, the context-driven ass-kickers the seven- to ten-day courses? Seven to nine day. Yeah. Nine the days. longer courses, you, you, I don't probably need to tell you this, but you can induce stress in a variety of ways. Yeah, you can induce stress minutes. by taking gear. That could be sleeping gear. That could be yeah. food. That could be water. You can induce stress by movement or non-movement. You can induce stress by putting them out when you know it's going to be this hot. You can induce stress by putting them out when you know it's going to be this cold. Or you can induce stress by the length of the course. So yeah. the more ass-kicking courses tend to be longer, correct? Yeah. Have you ever had instances where during the ass-kicking courses or even the other ones where students of yours become problems where they're like, no, you're not fucking tight, like they start getting attitude and it becomes a, an issue? I run a pretty tight ship, and I'm alpha. I'm responsible for my kids, and I, I'm alpha right off the bat. And I make it clear, you know, not in these words – I'm a nice guy until I, I until I shouldn't be nice. But I'm the boss here. I'm in charge of your safety. I care about you. I'm your leader, which means I take the hit, not you. That's what leadership's about. But I need you to do what I fucking say. Yeah. If there's something going down in the field, we're gonna we're gonna move on my mark. And everyone's just kind of uh huh, you know, because I it's important. I'm sure you've heard and lived by the term command presence. Oh yeah, it's not it's being everything. a dick. It's not yeah. being a bully. It's just I know what I'm doing, I know what I'm talking about, and I, I need you as my students that, you know, but what I try to do, which I think is important, is over the length of the course, I want them to self-lead. And I tell them, I'm going to start backing off as the days go by because I don't want you codependent. I want you self-reliant. I want you tribal-driven. So I start to back off, and as, as I'm – it's fun talking to you because I know that you know this <laughs> yeah. with your SEAL teams. 
There's the person that talks too much. There's the person that, that, that is, they're just, they're, they're they present stronger. I mean, they're not a bully. They're just, out, there's the person that knows, but is kind of more reserved by personality. So here's where the psychology comes in again. I have to look at the pecking order and I'm trying to have an altruistic tribe. And that tr picture, I'm going to say that one more time, an altruistic tribe. Now, that's kind of what a tribe is. But when you're dealing with human egos, and I've seen it in women too, especially in men, having a fluid tribe move in backcountry with limited gear that's respectful, that's driven not by any alpha personality, but by a commonality for group good is a fucking art form to be able to yeah. pull that off. And when I have a tribe that does that, that cares about each other, that moves through that backcountry, that starts to automatically download these skills and how they move, how they breathe, how they talk, when to get up, when not, what to say, it's beautiful. And yeah. I know you know that in a warfare well, sense. Yeah, well, even in, I would say, two ways, um, you know, the, the more obvious one being, you know, in, in a SEAL team, whether you're, you know, a, a swim pair, a fire team, a squad, a platoon, a task element, you know, whatever the size group is, the bigger, the more impressive, I think. But um... I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with firsthand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. But from a, a standpoint of similarly, you know, if at night, on night vision, without saying really anything, you've got 16 guys that are flooding a house and there's, you know, seven or eight or 10 or however many bad guys in there or, or whatever the fuck it is that's going on. And you have the ability to sweep through there without saying anything. You know exactly what every other guy is going to do before he does it. You can anticipate everything and everything is 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 orchestrated uh, to where it's it's like a, a masterful uh, you know, orchestra, you know, performing. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's something to behold and it's incredibly humbling and special to, to be a part of that when, when, when you are, as I'm sure it is for you to witness, you know, your, your students doing that. Yeah. It's uh, art. It's yeah. a high art, isn't it? it? It for sure is. Uh, and I would say that command presence and, and even more so, uh, when you're firing on all cylinders with a dog at a high level of training, similarly, is wow. it when you have, you know, because the, that command presence, one thing that, I think a lot of people don't don't think about until you you verbalize it, and, and I said it earlier, but I'll say it again: is that dogs don't think in a language, right? And and so if they don't think in a language, they don't communicate in a language either, obviously. And so while yes, there are verbal communications from dog to human and dog to dog, et cetera, overwhelmingly it's nonverbal communication and body language that that is dogs' communication with each other and with with us as human beings, and so. Your, your command presence, and, and I think you nailed it, it's not about being a dick. It's about exuding a, an emotional stoicness that a dog can pick up on fucking right now. Like, that guy knows what the fuck he's doing. Exactly. And, and, I, and I trust him. You know, he's not being an asshole, but he's for fuck sure not a pushover either. And, yeah. and so once you yeah. get in, in, a, in a very tight-bonded, trust-based relationship with a dog and you're doing things that aren't just – 
you know, parlor tricks and fucking obedience. I'm talking about, you know, sending dogs in, you know, doing advanced, you know, using laser guided for explosive detection or, uh, you know, j- jumping through a fucking a window of a warehouse to, to go get a bad guy that's fighting him with something or, or what have you and, and being able to, to move into those environments. And that dog knows exactly what you're going to do and you know exactly what that dog's going to do. And, and you're kind of feeding off each other non-verbally. It's really fucking cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, you know, so it, it's, I mean, it really, and I, and I frankly think a lot of similarities um, exist between that and what you do in terms of the primal nature is that, you know, mm-hmm. man and dog have been working together for a long fucking time, you know, and, and while. Do you know, do you know how long? Have you done any historical research I, on that at all? I mean, I have, but it, it's so all over the map. I mean, the, the, I would say that, you know, there, there's, you know, d- different lengths of time, uh, the most common one that I've come across is 10,000 years. Now wow. who fucking knows if that's how long it is or not, you know, but for war dogs, what about for war dogs? Well, for war dogs, I mean, you know, since, since recorded combat experience, dogs have been used in combat from, from the beginning. And, and that's one wow. thing I mentioned in my, in my first book. Um, it, it's in the, in the very beginning is that what, what captivates me and I find truly remarkable is that from the beginning of, of recorded uh, combat, is that there's there's one thing that human beings have consistently used um, at, at the very highest level of combat, and that's dogs. And even in today's day and age, where there's laser guided munitions and night vision and smart bombs and you know drones that you know that can detect heat and you know fire munitions that go through eight feet of reinforced concrete and all this other whiz bang shit. Um, our, our nation's most elite forces, you know, our, our tier one special operations units have canines out in front of them le- leading in combat scenarios, wow. you know, and, and to me, like if, if that's not, uh, you know, a, a telling and accurate representation of, of how remarkable and effective canines are, nothing is because, you know, special operations groups don't use shit that doesn't work. Um, you know, while, while some, some industries use a lot of shit that doesn't work, uh, you know, if, if it's being used in combat, it's absolutely for a fucking reason. And, uh, you know, so yeah, it's just, it's really neat to see them, uh, still being utilized and still being as Can I ask you a dog question? No, please do. Why, why Malamu, Belgian Malamu? I mean, Uh, why? How do you pronounce that? Um, Malinois. Okay. What makes a good combat dog, and are there are were they bred to be good combat? What I mean, I see that we we know the Doberman yes. Pinscher German Shepherd. That's more like probably A team stuff on TV. Yeah. But what makes a good combat dog, and why? So a lot of the same similarities from a character trait and working drive standpoint that make a a human a good operator um, in terms of you know environmentally stable, confident, socially uh, competent, and uh, and sociable enough to be able to be integrated into units that, that there's moving parts and people that maybe the dog doesn't know very well. Um, you know, being athletic, being well-rounded physically. Um, so that, that's the first part. Um, in ter- you know, I could spend hours talking about the nuances of, you know, prey drive and hunt drive and natural forward aggression and, and things of that nature, which are all very important. But, you know, take a, a fair bit of explanation that probably is beyond the scope of of this episode. But uh, but I will say from a um, kind of a long-term standpoint or generational standpoint of, of what makes 
the Malinois such a good dog is is the utilitarian well-roundedness of them. Um, you know, 150 years ago, they were primarily herders. You know, they they were sheep herding dogs, uh, but farm dogs, and not not dissimilar to even today, is that what makes a good farm dog is just like I said, it's it's well-rounded. Is that you can hunt with it, you can use it for protection, you can use it for companionship, you can use it for uh, vermin and, and ratting and keeping quote unquote the riffraff out. Um, you know, that there's, there's kind of a multi-purpose application to them where they're, they're good at everything. Um, you know, they may not be the very best at any one thing, but, but they're, they're good at fucking everything. And so, especially in an environment where, you know, special operations are, are kind of the jack of all trades, master of none to a certain extent, uh, you know, that dog has to mirror that same capability in, in terms of being able to do all of these things in really any environment, because we do take them in pretty much any environment, including jumping out of planes, uh, you know, th- that we go in with the exception of underwater. You know, nobody's in, uh, invented a, a scuba rig for a dog just yet, but uh, but maybe that'll that'll come down the pipe. Who knows? How long have you guys been using that breed in particular? Not that long. So, you know, it was, well, let me take a step back is that, you know, the, that, that breed has just been something of kind of a, a bastard child as far as being well known. It, it's been around as long as German Shepherds and, and anything else has. I mean, I'd say 80 years, a uh, hundred years ago, um, the German Shepherd, the, ba- the Belgian Malinois and the Dutch Shepherd were, were essentially all the same dog. Uh, it was it was really a paint job at that point, and and from my standpoint, it really still is. In that, my selection test is what it is. Uh, it, it takes no bias or account for sex, for breed, for markings, for for any of that. I don't give a shit what it is. You know, it could be a fucking golden doodle. If it has all of the traits that I need to do that type of work, then that dog passes my selection test, and it's and it's in the program. Uh, if it doesn't, it on the transverse, it also doesn't matter. I don't care if its parents were the best two dogs I've ever come across, and it's the the most, you know, benchmark consummate example of of the picture most picturesque working Malinois I've ever seen. If if it doesn't do what it needs to do in in the capacity with which I need it to, then it doesn't fucking matter either. And so, you know, I wouldn't say that we necessarily have preferences for those three breeds or even the specific breed of a Malinois. It's just that. Because um, it, it's been a very heavily selectedly bred dog for a long time, and, and the and the stewards of the breed, by and large, have been um, very masterful in, in how selective they've been in such a good good way that it, it's maintained a really high working standard for that breed at a higher percentage level than than other breeds. I've seen you know dogs of just about every breed that that had similar character traits but they're they're anomalies whereas with these dogs there's just a much higher percentage of of candidates that uh you know that are are at that level you know where where and when they need to be and i i have one can i ask you another question yeah i was on your website for the dog rehab and i saw the pictures of the dogs and but i didn't understand are you taking combat dogs and trying to replace them with 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 civilian individuals or would those dogs try to be replaced with someone who's military for non-combat reasons it's both i mean the 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 short answer is whatever makes the most sense for for that dog in that scenario you know we we've had thousands of volunteers that have said you know hey i'd love to take one of these dogs um 
in most cases, their situation is not a good fit for the dogs that we have. You know, it, yeah. it is important to, to keep in mind for anybody listening that, that maybe wants to volunteer. And, and I do encourage it on the same token is that every one of the dogs that we get in, we get in for a, a very specific reason. And, and it's not because they're easy to deal with uh, or, or would make a good foster candidate. Uh, none of them are. And that's why we have them is that in every instance, these dogs have come to us with, with the very basic premise that they bit several people that they weren't supposed to uh, and, and ultimately got themselves in the position, whether it's temperament, whether it's training baggage, whether it's uh, PTSD from, from certain operational tempo, tempos in different environments. Maybe it's a combination of all those things. But the reality of it is that they are in a position where whatever unit they're with um, has has deemed them dangerous to the point where they're they're such a liability that they would rather euthanize the dog than continue wow. having them. Wow. So that that's the backdrop with which we're getting every single one of these dogs. You know, ev- every one of them that we have, and, and we have uh, a kennel of thirty of them at at any given time, and, and usually have a few on a waiting list uh, to come here. Is that every one of those dogs would have been euthanized by that unit if we didn't take them? that comes with a huge amount of responsibility and, and, you know, every employee that I've had, uh, you know, basically, you know, it, it's kind of like a firefighter is it's not when you're going to get burnt. It's, it's just, uh, or it's not if it's when, wow. um, you know, it, it's a dangerous, uh, you know, line of work. And, and, you know, I've been bet a number of times, like I said, everybody that I, that I've had working for me over the last 12 years, um, you know, ha- has as well. And so, um, it's, it's just kind of part of the deal. But, uh, so, back to your question is that, you know, our ultimate goal, uh, you know, as a primary function is to act as a resource for these units so that the dogs aren't euthanized. And that's step one. Step two is then once we get the dog in is that we want to evaluate them in conjunction with the turnover data from whatever unit and handler they come from, uh, coupled with with our team's kind of assessment of where that dog is and, and kind of evaluating over a period of time as they settle in then we kind of develop a a training plan, uh, a rehabilitation protocol for each dog individually. They all have similar traits, but they all are, are different enough to where they they require their own kind of special nuance that way. So, uh, at that point, we you know d- do what we can with the dog over a period of time. There there is no time limit; it's as long as it takes. And for some dogs, we can rehabilitate them and we get them to the to the point where we can rehome them to either a civilian. Uh, environment or a, you know, a former handler or, or, you know, some sort of dynamic that is a, an appropriate fit for that dog. And in some cases we can't, uh, in the cases that we can't, it's still a no kill resource where we just, wow. you know, basically let them be a dog, um, and kind of, you know, as the horse term would be, let them out to pasture and, and just let them retire, uh, you know, on the ranch and let them do their thing. And, and that's the gist of it, you know? And so, uh, in some cases we'll have the dogs for years. Uh, until they get to the point where where it's time for them to pass naturally, but well, I really admire what you do with that. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, it it's a, it's an honor uh, to to be a part of it for sure. I mean, it's a labor of love, and it's uh, it's difficult. You know, it, it's it's not a normal boarding facility that you know you've yeah. got eight dollar an hour employees that are you know teenage kids that are just letting uh, you know chihuahuas out and and having playdates and stuff. I mean, it, it is a very specific skill set oriented environment that's that's dangerous and and takes takes a lot of effort and resources but uh, but you know I've always looked at it uh, and that's really how it started was 
not only is it worth it, it's the right thing to do. You know, every one of these dogs, and we've taken them in from just about every working unit uh, within the United States, whether it's military, police, federal, uh, law enforcement, et cetera. And, um, you know, th- these dogs didn't volunteer. You know, they were bred, raised, yeah. and trained for a purpose. And uh, and the least we could do is is at least give them, uh, you know, the dignity and grace of living out their life uh, to the best of our, our ability as humans. Yeah, thank, uh, you, thank know, to, you. To do that. Thanks. Thing, right? Oh yeah, yeah. It's I mean, like I said, it's a pleasure to be in the position to even to even do that. So uh, I'm, I'm honored to 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 do it. But um, all right. Um, so I, I know we're uh, running a little low on time here. But um, if you could, if there's anything that uh, as we wrap up that you'd like to kind of add or or any uh, services that you'd like to plug or or talk about, uh, I'd love to hear about it. Sure. Yeah. Um. My name is Cody Lundin. I run the Aboriginal Living Skills School based in Prescott, Arizona. We teach two-day to nine-day courses. Our seat is, in, is happening now, pretty much from April to October. And <clears> if you want to train out in the field, www.codylundin.com, C-O-D-Y-L-U-N-D-I-N. Be careful who you train with. There's a thing on my webpage about vetting a competent instructor. I recommend that you look at it, not you, you, but your, your listeners. If you want to train and trust your life to someone, whether it's urban preparedness or whatever, vet your instructor, for God's sake. And the biggest red flag you should have, anyone on TV should be suspect. Anyone on TV, (laughs) you should especially vet someone who's appeared on a survival show. Vet them heavy. Yeah. Amen. I love it. Well, thank you much. It's been uh, awesome talking to you. Super interesting, and, and I'm honored. Like I said, I've been a fan of, of yours for a number of years, and, and really enjoyed uh, watching the show. I know it's probably bittersweet to, to hear that or to think of it, but uh, but it was it was it was fun to watch. And uh, you're a hell of a hell of a guy, and and I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk well, with me today. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, for you guys, I hope you enjoyed. Um, I, I know I sure did. Uh, thank you for the, the continued support on the on the episodes. Without your support, we would not be able to do what we do. Um, so I can't thank you guys enough. Um, until next time, this is Mike Drop. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen.